Hey, 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 what's going on, you guys? Welcome back to Forgiven AF Podcast. Remember, this is a second chance podcast that we use as marketing material for our mentorship program. And this weekend, y'all, we had a back-to-school barbecue, and it was freaking awesome. We had 12 boys show up. We had about eight or nine mentors show up and their family. Um, and it was just really cool to to spend time with these kids and celebrate them before they go back to school and give them their talk to, you know, about how important school is and how it's just, you know, how important it is to follow through and to uh, make it through this stage. Because, you know, it's a tough stage for some of these boys right now, but they're really making, you know, big steps in the right direction and we're really proud of them. Um, and then that's really it for that. But now to the to today's show. So a few months ago, no, probably about a month or so ago, I'd say, um, Stephen Wilson, who is the head prison pastor for Gateway Church, um, invited me to go with him to a graduation that they were having for a recovery house program in Texas state jails or TDCJ, right? Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely awesome to see the change in these men. Um, and while I was there, I ran into a guy who, I mean, you guys will see in a minute, when you speak to him, you're just going to be able to tell that, you know, he's radiating God's love. And, and a lot of these men in prison, you know, the way he dedicates his life to these men in prison and Sometimes it's not the most rewarding thing. Sometimes you're actually, well, we'll let him talk about that. I just, I just know the reason I want to bring you on for one, uh, Wayne, is to thank you for what you do. Because when I went to prison, there was a guy that came every week and sat at a table by himself. A lot of the weeks he had no engagement. A lot of the weeks this man was just sitting there by himself. And sometimes he would come and people would go sit with him. And after a few weeks of him coming, what attracted me to go and, you know, start a conversation with him was his consistency. Like he did, I feel like if I would have gone in a couple of weeks and no one came and talked to me, I would have been like, all right, this isn't for me. But this guy was there consistently and I went and talked to him. And because of him sharing, you know, the gospel with me, that was literally like a huge catalyst in me finding God. So when I see you and you interacting with these men, it just reminded me of that. And I was very thankful for that, you know? So uh, Wayne Edson runs a nonprofit called Inside the Wire. First of all, Wayne, thank you for being here. Could you kind of tell my listeners just a quick, like, kind of who you are and where you're from type yeah, of thing? Yeah, Sean. So um, I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, at the probably about the age of four years old, uh, I moved to Texas. So I'm really a Texan. I was grow, grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, lived in San Antonio through my freshman year of college. Uh, transferred then back to New Orleans, went to Tulane. And when I graduated college, then I uh, took off in the oil patch and I've been in I've been in Houston, San Antonio, Midland, Denver, and Dallas. Um, and I retired out of the oil business in Dallas. That's that's so. awesome. So you've been I didn't even know that about you that you were in yeah. the oil field for all that yeah. long. Um can we talk? So we've talked about a couple things over the past few weeks of us getting to know each other, and some of it is just so impactful and so important to be heard, and that's why I wanted to bring you on the show. So I'm going to kind of just point you in directions that, that I would like to go if you're okay with it. If there's anything that I asked you about that we've talked about that you're not really comfortable with, I don't think that that's going to be the case because I know you're about helping people. So um, are you comfortable with sharing with us kind of like your family and parents dynamics growing up? Sure, sure. So, uh, like I said, I was born in New Orleans. Um, I believe probably around the age of two, my parents separated. Uh, And then my mother remarried, uh, and I believe it was around the age of four. My sister and I, I have a sister who's 11 months older than I am. Uh, We moved to Texas. Um, We were... um, you know, we had a, a good family. We had a mother and a father at home, uh, middle class. Uh, my uh, stepfather had just, he had, used to run a, a bar. He had a nightclub. Um, then after that, he was a builder. So for many years and probably up until the time um, that I got through school, he was a builder. I worked, you know, summers with the crew, learned a lot of uh, Hispanic, uh, a lot of Mexican talk that I probably can't repeat because I was in construction. But uh, anyhow, yeah, so that was our, our, our early life. Um, 
one of the things about my early life that I think, and, and I've been able to use this story to help other men in prison, because I run across so many men, Sean, in prison who have not had a good relationship or no relationship. So as I said, uh, my parents divorced when I was about two years old. I never, ever heard again from my father after that. Um, and so during early years and you know early teen years, my sister and I both always would wonder, well, why in the world did our father never call us? Why did we never see him? Why did we never get a birthday card? You know, uh, why did we never get Christmas? You know, and we went on and on. And what that instilled in me was really a, a, almost a, a hatred for my natural father because I didn't know. I thought, well, what was wrong with me? You know, why, why would he, uh, what did I ever do that he would never want to talk to me? Um, when I was 41 years old, I had moved back to Texas, I believe in uh, 1989, and shortly after I moved back to Dallas uh, from Denver, I was contacted by his younger brother. And uh, when I first got contacted, I thought, well, I don't want to even go see this guy. But he said, you know, please come out. I want He lived outside of Longview in Gilmer. So I said one day, you know, I said, well, I'm I'm going to be doing business in Tyler. When I get through with my business, I'll come over. So when I went to meet with him, when we had coffee, um, I had a lot of questions. And I just hit him right off the bat. You know, like, what did I ever do to my father that he didn't want any contact with me? And my uncle kind of looked shocked. And he said, you don't know? And I said, no. He said, well, your father killed himself. So shortly after my parents divorced, my father committed suicide. Well, it took me probably a year and a half or two years to process that. Um, I'm, my sister and I were like, we talked and we're like, wow, you know, maybe this is starting to make a little sense. Um, and um, I asked her, I said, well, uh, during, that, during that period of time, we actually had contact, I think, two times with uh, his parents. My grandparents came from California, but nobody ever discussed the story, you know, the, the elephant in the room, yeah. if you will. So when we finally found this out, uh, it took me probably a year, year and a half, and uh, I talked to some friends that were in recovery, and uh, I said, how do, you, how do I make amends, you know, for my part? Uh, because I felt like I had to make amends and ask forgiveness for the false impression that I had on my father. For all the years you had for, the anger and yeah. like, resentments. Yeah, all that. the resentments that I had. So I had to say, okay, so what I had to do, he was already, you know, he was buried. I couldn't go, you know. Conf, you know, see him and, and ask for forgiveness. So what I did is I, I wrote a letter, and that was between me, him, and God. And after that, I uh, just destroyed the letter, and let, I just handed it over to God. That's good. You could tell that that's definitely a big part of working those steps, too, is making those amends and getting that cleared off your conscience so that you, you know, that can keep you from relapsing and going back to, you know, shame because one thing that really made me sad, like almost tear up, was when you were saying at a kid and you're wondering, what did I do to make my dad not want to come around? What did I do? Think about how many boys in the United States are living right now without fathers. And I wonder, you know, if you felt that way, I wonder how many other boys feel like it's their fault that their dad's not around. Do you know what I mean? Or, or even little girls like that's that's just got to be a tough way to live, especially when it's not very rational. You know what I mean? Like, what could a two-year-old kid have done to cause their parents to not want to be around? So, first of all, I'm sorry that you had to yeah. deal with that. That would definitely be tough. But being able to use that now and share with other little boys that it's not them, you know what I mean? If well, and, and Sean, what's really interesting, too, uh, so this is like in 1989, and 
I have been able to use this in prison ministry because I meet so many men in prison who have that same type of broken relationship, dysfunctional relationships, family relationship. So, you know, God took my mess and made it into a message. Yeah. And, you know, in 1989, I had no idea that I would be spending as many years as I've spent in prison going in and ministering with. That's so know, good, people. man. And I can't wait to really dive into the prison ministry yeah. thing because that that's a hard it's a hard thing to get into with not a whole bunch of, you know, congratulations, good job. You know what I mean? People just don't really want to know what's going on inside of prisons. Um, one last thing before we move on to the childhood thing, and we talked about this in the truck a little bit ago, was mm-hmm. there's so many men and women nowadays who haven't had that good, solid, loving father in their life that when, you know, the Bible or a pastor is saying, you know, God loves you like a father, they don't, they don't understand that and have that right. connection that like I did have. When, when, when I heard a pastor say, God loves you as much as your dad, that was extremely powerful to me because I had a father that loved me more than anything else I can think of, you know? Yeah. So a lot of kids nowadays don't have that, which makes it harder for them to come to God when they're going through that same sort of situation. You're right. I mean, uh, a, a young man, I mean, I don't know how many men I have met in prison that will tell me, you know, hey, you know, my father abandoned me or whatever. And it's, it, it's you know, it's a hard concept. I mean... The theological answer is, hey, we live in a broken world, uh, but it's easy to project that projection onto God, the yeah. Father. But when I believe when we really show man that the truth that God is a God of love, those walls and barriers, they break down. Yeah, that's so know. true. Like God is not sitting up there staring down at you like, aha, I knew you were going to do that. Or... Gotcha. You know what I mean? A lot of people look at God like he's up there just watching for us to mess up. Um, and that's just really not the case. So prison ministry. How did you, uh, you, you got into prison ministry originally with Kairos, right? Right. And can you kind of explain to me, or I kind of know now from you telling me, but what is Kairos? And- okay. So Kairos prison ministry uh, is, is about one of the oldest uh, prison ministries. It's uh, about 70 years old. It's based on the same uh, uh Weekend experience as a and a walk to Emmaus or Tres Dias or Crisillo. Uh, it is we go in, uh, in in the Michael unit where I'm at. Uh, we're on weekend. We will be in October on weekend 59. So we do two weekends a year. So you can see how many years we've been doing That's it. That's awesome. Um, I started on weekend 44, um, and um, I had a good friend who uh, I knew through recovery um, that uh, kept asking me, go into prison. And he said, you've got so much to give. And I was like, no, I don't need to go to prison. You know, I mean, I, I was one of these, I don't know, uh, ultra conservatives or whatever that thought, hey, man, you know, they did the crime. They're doing the time. I, what do I need to go in there? Um, but I'll never forget, I did, I finally, uh, he was leading a weekend, uh, team leader on, on weekend 44. And uh, we were in actually a family's anonymous meeting with him due to the fact of history of recovery in my family. Uh, my oldest son is on his 30th year of sobriety right now. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. But anyhow, we were we were in we knew this uh, this family through recovery, um, and he said, you know, hey, uh, we're getting ready for this weekend, and I'm I mean I don't have enough guys, and I said, well, why don't you ask me? And he said, well, I asked you for two years, so I went in, and um, that Thursday we went in on a Thursday, Thursday through Sunday. And I, I know um, I kind of I called my wife Thursday night, and I'm like, "Wow, this is not what I expected." Uh, and by the time that weekend was over with, uh, and I got home, and my wife was like, "Something changed. Something changed in you." And it was it was God. 
because God showed me that I really needed, you know, this is the place where we always look and say, how, where, where can we minister? And what God showed me is my ministry had to be inside the wire, inside those, you know, and it's not the friendliest place, as you know. Um, you know, we've got all kind of obstacles. We have COs that we have wardens sometimes that don't no, you know, no. like, hey, man, you're a hug a thug. What are you doing in here? Okay, thug. Okay. <laughs> Let me hit on a couple of things because yeah. that's awesome. One thing that's awesome is that you kept saying no to going into the prisons, right? You're like, no, no, no. You were thinking of it as like, I don't need to go help them. You know what I mean? But it's so funny how God can flip the whole switch and you yeah. get in there and realize, oh, God, you were wanted me in here for me. Exactly. Like, you wanted me in here so I could learn things and I could become a better person. It wasn't just about me going to help them. Exactly. And it's so funny how sometimes we can get more out of helping. I get more out of helping these boys in our program than they get, I'm sure. Amen. Like It keeps me yeah. energetic. It keeps me happy. It keeps me out of trouble because I know that I can't let them down. Mm-hmm. It's like I get more out of it than they do sometimes. So one thing that I want to touch on because it's very important to me is diversity and race, right? Right. Can we talk about how yeah. y'all set up the Kairos? Yeah, thing? so what what I really love about Kairos, and uh, I kind of knew this going in, but my first experience of it, it was really pretty amazing. Um, unlike Walks to Emmaus or Tristeus, which are outside programs where any, anyone can sign up for it, or you're usually sponsored by someone else. In the, in the Kairos prison ministry, the men are normally picked by the chaplaincy and the wardens. And um, they try to pick the po- both positive and negative leaders for the weekend. But what they do is they pick 14 white, 14 black, and 14 Hispanic yeah. for every weekend. So every time we go in and do a weekend with 42 men, we have an equal mix and you say, well, why is that? Well, as you probably remember, you know, know from prison, if, you've, if you're not familiar with the prison, um, racists don't mix in prison. It's the most segregated yeah. thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, and it's not healthy segregation. It's us versus them a lot. It's very, you know, have each other's back. And, and just the fact that you guys, the, the Kairos is set up that way, even down, they even set it up all the way down to the tables. Right. So like... It's basically white, black, Hispanic, white, black, Hispanic. And it's just, it's so important because if you're going to teach the love of Christ and you're going to get people to follow the Holy Spirit, they have to realize that like, it's like heaven. We're all going to be there. So why are we waiting to, till we get there to live that way? You know? Exactly. I mean, the, the, when you, when these guys come in uh, and on Friday morning, when they sit down with their table family and they look across that table, you could see the look like what is going on here you know why am i sitting next to this guy you know and all my homies over there or whatever you know and uh, but it's that beginning of breaking that down and getting these guys comfortable with each other and you know just like uh in your trustees experience that you had when you lit after you listen to a talk you know, the, the, that 15 or 20 minutes of bonding together yep. as, as a family. And so now you've got, you know, a white guy and a black guy and a Hispanic guy, you know, and they're all like, okay, well, here's what I think. Here's what I yeah. think, you know. So it's really, it's, 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 in my opinion, it's one of the best ministries, prison ministries, as far as breaking down these barriers, you know, and keeping these men together. Yeah, I think I think it's amazing. I actually didn't even know that much about it, and since I've done Trace Diaz, I'm actually would be able to go serve in Kairos. Yes. See, I need to look into that because I would absolutely love that. Now, you guys don't stay in the prisons Thursday through Sunday, do you? No, we're we we're we basically are there probably twelve hours. You know, we we our our normal schedule. We go in on Thursday afternoon around two o'clock. Uh, we usually have the men from about two to six. Uh, on Friday mornings, we go in and like at six in the morning, we get the men out of you know after count or before count. We usually have them from about seven uh, in the morning till about six uh, in the evening. Uh, w- during their experience, um, they're here all the talks. Uh, 
and and we we're up front with them. We're Christians. We're 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 you know, but we're not forcing it down anyone's throat. Yeah. But we're going to talk to them about what God has done in our lives, and we share with them those experiences. But we're also known as the Cookie Ministry. We bring thousands of cookies into the prison every time we do a weekend. That's funny. And everyone, I mean, the the correctional officers, everybody's like, "Oh, here come the cookies," you know. Uh, and these guys, you know, eat cookies after cookies after cookies to where they get sick. But, you know, uh, it, it's just something to start breaking it down. And it, what they don't realize is the beginning of showing God's agape love, you know, yeah. that here's someone from the outside who doesn't know these guys from Adam is bringing all this stuff in. Uh, and the meals these guys get... Um, oh, do they do like special meals? Oh, them? yeah. That's yeah cool. we, the, the meals we make, we have an outside team uh, that prepares all these meals for these men. And they eat things during the Carol's weekend that they never get in prison. And that is just something that just blows them away. I mean, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, I ate eight chicken breasts, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so, uh, But, no, it's, it's a combination of talks, loving on them, and just feeding them some food that, you know, is just amazing food. You know, what do they say? A, a way to a man's uh, heart is, is through his stomach? stomach? <laughs> uh-huh. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, let's see. And then, so aside from Kairos, you also do um, the recovery program, the overcomers right. program? Yeah. And then is that just, how often is that? So um, I did Kairos for about three years. Uh, and on Carol's, we would do we do the two four day weekends a year, and then on Tuesday nights we do what we call prayer and share, and then on the second Saturday of every month we have the team come back in and and visit with the guys. After about my third year of doing Carol's, uh, the chaplain asked me to become what they call a certified volunteer chaplain. So I, I went through additional training to do that. Uh, that really allows me, I'm really just like a chaplain on the unit right now. Yeah. I, I handle keys. I can go anywhere on the unit. Oh, that's cool. I'm not restricted. I go into SAG. I go into uh, hospice or wherever. I can go all over the unit. But I also, it allows me to be able to teach a recovery class. That's cool. So I teach overcomers recovery. Overcomers Recovery, it's a 90-day recovery program. I take them through the 12 steps. It's a Christ-centered recovery program. That's cool. I do that basically three times a year. I used to do it year-round, and about five years ago, I got so hot during the summer. Uh, I got. I actually went to the—I was in the hospital for, I believe, three days because of just, you know, heat-related uh, you know, um, yeah. I was telling your, your friend earlier today, you know, the sad thing is we treat animals in this country better than we do men in Texas prisons. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it gets up to 140 degrees up in some of those cells. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, it's about to be 110 today. And yeah. They, they don't yeah. have any, no windows. No. It's just a, that's miserable. It's just blowing hot air. Yeah. They have fans that just blow hot air. Like wet their sheets down and yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the guys that uh, uh, have figured out, hey, you can make a little tent, take your sheet, you know, wet it down, run a little string, get under it like a tent. And if you are fortunate enough to have commissary and have a little fan, personal fan, you can blow that in there and cool you down. But it's still miserable. It's there. still miserable. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's tough. Okay, now this is probably the most impactful part of this whole podcast, to me anyways, that I want to get into. And and that's about sharing an impactful story that's happened to you since you've been in prison. Okay. Um, and <laughs> this story, I could listen to you say it over and over again. Um, you know where I'm going. Yeah. How, how do you want to start? How do you start that? Okay, so I was preparing for a Kairos weekend, and uh, w- we did the weekend in October of 2014. I believe it was in early September of 2014, uh, I was diagnosed with squamous cell cancer on my head. Uh, I had a spot, and they said, okay, um, we got, you got to get you in and do Mohs surgery. 
part of my pride was like, no, I'm not going to go get my surgery done before I do this Carol's Weekend. I don't want to be going into prison with a big hole in my head, you know, open hole and and all that. So I, I just kind of said no. So really, my wife and I were the only people that really knew, and my kids, you know, they knew, okay, uh, Dad's got to go have this surgery for this uh, squamous cell cancer that can lead into more, you know, evasive cancer if you don't take care of it. So I kept this secret, even from my team members that went in. And I went in and did the whole weekend. Sunday night, I'm driving my car back from uh, the prison. And if you, you ever read the story of Jacob wrestling with the you know, God, that's similar to what it was. In my car ride, I mean, the Holy Spirit was convicting me all the way back, two-hour drive to Dallas, and the Holy Spirit was like, Wayne, you just spent four days with these men sharing about Jesus, but you didn't ask them to pray for you. And I'm like going, oh, my gosh, you know what? And and when I look back on it now, Sean, it was pride. It was my pride. I didn't want these guys knowing. But I got home that night, and it was probably, by the time we ended the Carol's event and Packed everything up, got out of there. It was probably 9 o'clock at night. I got home, and I was, after that four-day weekend, you're exhausted. Yeah. Um, I sat down, and my wife says, you know, hey, let's go to bed. And I said, honey, I've got to write six letters. So I had to write. I wrote the six men at my table. I wrote them a letter, and I told them, I said, you know, first of all, I said, I want to apologize. I said, I, d- I held something back from you guys. I said, uh, I've been diagnosed, and I'm going to have to go in in November and have surgery uh, on squamous cell, you know, Mohs surgery. Well, this, uh, on November the 8th, I go into the prison for a second Saturday. We probably had about 200 men there that day. And those six men had already spread it around. By the time I got there, there was like 200 men. They're like, man, we're, we're, we want to pray, pray for you. Uh, and when we finished the event, we set a chair up in the middle of Seven Gym where you were that yeah. day for that deal. I'm sitting in a chair. I've got all these men surrounding me, men in white. They're uh, praying over me, anointing me with oil. I have no idea where the oil came from. I don't want to even know <laughs> where the oil came from. But anyhow, they prayed for me. And uh, so this was November the 8th. November the 18th, I go in 5.30 in the morning for my surgery. And uh, I go in and I sit down. They get me in, sit me in a chair, getting ready to start the surgery. And the surgeon's like, something's not right. And I'm looking at him like, what do you mean? You know, he goes, he says, uh, he tells the nurse, bring me the file. They bring. So when I was diagnosed in September, they took a picture of the spot. The surgeon's like looking, and he goes, something ain't right here. He said, this spot, I don't even see the spot right now. He said, but I've got the picture. He said, so we're going to do another biopsy. He said, but I'm going to take a, you know, and just instead of the biopsy, he said, I'm going to take a layer out of your skin, and we're going to biopsy it. So we did. I went back in the waiting room. They do it right there on spot. You know, so my wife and I are in this waiting room, and there's other people getting most surgery, and we're praying with people, and chill. And uh, the nurse finally calls him back, says, "Mr. Edson, come on back." And this is how the devil works, Sean. I mean, it wasn't a hundred feet from that waiting area to the little room I go into, and the little devil's on my shoulder, going, "See." God doesn't work. God doesn't care about you. Prayer doesn't work. You know, they're going to go in and they're going to take more of your head away. And, you know, you know th- this isn't over with. But when I sat down in that chair, I mean, it was like the peace just flooded over me. I sat down in that chair and the nurse says, well, uh, we're, we're getting we're going to bandage you up to go home. And then the doctor walks in. And the doctor says, Mr. Edson, he says, I don't know how to explain this. I said, what? He goes, he says, there is no cancer. God, that was good. I'm trying not to cry. And you told me that story three times. Yeah. So I look at the, I look at the doctor and the nurse, and I said, well, let me tell you something. 
I said, um, about uh, a little over about 10 days ago, I was in prison and I had a bunch of men pray for me about this cancer. And I told them the whole story about getting anointed with oil. And the more I'm talking, Sean, the more this nurse, her mouth is just dropping open, like looking at me like, what is going on here? This guy's in prison. He's got men in prison praying over him. And the doctor's like looking at me and he's like, okay, you're nodding his head. And so they patch me up. I, I show them uh, this, uh, tell them about Kairos, my little wristband that I've got now. At that time, I didn't have a wristband, but I tell them all about Kairos and tell them about these men. And so uh, it just so happened, November the 18th, 5.30 in the morning is when I went in for surgery. Uh, November the 18th, that night was prayer and share in the Michael unit. So uh, I go home, and around 2 o'clock, I'm like, honey, I've got to go down to the prison. And she's like, no, you you, know, you just had the, a big hole in your head, and you got this big bandage. I said, honey, I've got to go tell the man. So I go down to the prison, and it was cold that November. I'm hoping it's cold again. Um, have a stocking cap on. I pull it off, and I've got this big bandage on my head. And everybody's looking, and I said, hey, guys, you see this bandage on my head? And they're like, yeah. I said, well, this is not what you think it is. I said, this is God's victory. They look at me, and I tell them the whole story. Because when, when we got through and we were getting ready to leave, the surgeon actually came out of his office. He said, Mr. and Mrs. Etson, I want you to tell those men prayer worked. Oh, man. that's You know, I was going to ask you about that, too. And let me try to do it without crying. But it... Um, a lot of times they say it's hard for doctors and lawyers and educated people like that to believe in God because they've been so taught through um, education and, you know, cause and effect and black and white, right? Um, so to hear the, the surgeon come out and say that is pretty powerful. Well, and I don't know if the surgeon was a Christian or not. He was an Indian. Yeah. His name was Dr. Gupta. Um, he saw but, something happen. He saw something happen, and he heard it. But it's really, really amazing. So I go in there. This is November the 18th, and I'm sharing my story, and I'm encouraging these men. I'm saying, look at what you did. Look at what God answered your prayers. And as I'm getting ready to leave, there was a young man who sat at my table uh, during that chiral. He goes, Mr. Wayne, he said, did you get my letter? And I said, uh, Brand, his name was Brandon. I said, no, Brandon, I haven't seen your letter because, you know, the letters from the men have to go to a safe place. And I didn't have a P.O. box back then. I didn't have my ministry set up. Uh, so they were going to my church. So I get to his letter on November 23rd. And I'm reading this letter. And I'm looking at it. It was written November the 14th. I'll never forget this. And in his letter, he's talking about not only, you know, he was part of the people that prayed for me November the 8th, but he's showing me how the woman with the issue of blood, but just by faith, reached out and touched the, the cloak of Jesus and was healed. He goes, just like that story, you're going to be healed. He said, but you're not only going to be healed, you're going to tell your testimony to hundreds That's about so your healing. Well, see, I, I, I read this letter and I'm like, whoa. I've already given my testimony to like 200 men in the Michael unit. Yeah. Uh, and really since then, so this is in November 2014. Um, for about two, three years, I gave my story several times to youth groups at church. Yeah. I gave it to other groups. Um, and then in 2016, my wife and I felt like God wanted us to move to Gateway. Uh, and that's, uh, I moved to Gateway. Uh, Pastor Stephen Wilson knew my story. Uh, and he's like, man, you need to share your story. And Gateway at that time had what they called people, Gateway People Magazine stories. So my wife and I went down and we shared my, our, my testimony. And it's been published in Gateway People. That's awesome. Uh, so from 200 to probably hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands yeah. have heard my testimony. And you know what's amazing, Sean? Like you say, when I, I resisted doing prison ministry because I thought, why do I want to do this? 
God blessed me more than I could ever be blessed. Isn't that cool? You know, and, and so that really started me on the pro, the road that I'm on now of, of you know, making Inside the Wire prison ministry. Um, we now have Gateway in, in the Michael unit, and we will be doing now through Gateway some of the things that I was able to do through Inside the Wire, Day with Dads, marriage conferences, things like that. But, you know... Um, but it's not like Gateway come and took over. It's kind of like you guys locked on. No, right? no. Uh, it, it's, it's really a funny story because uh, when, when I met Pastor Stephen Wilson, he wasn't really on Gateway staff at that time. He was G3 Prison Ministries. Okay. And he and I are talking, and he's like, so you're at the Michael unit? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, you're one of the volunteer chaplains? I said, yeah. He goes, man, I've been trying to get in the Michael unit. I said, well, what's the problem? He goes, ah, he goes, the chaplain just doesn't want, you know, doesn't respond. I said, well, let's take care of that. So I brought Pastor Stephen in, uh, introduced him to the chaplain, introduced him to the warden, and that was really kind of the beginning. So yeah, they didn't take over. Yeah. But uh, but but it was Pastor Stephen helped me get the materials together to do day with dads and gateway gateway covered the cost of it. That's what I love about what the Gateway's doing is they're really willing to lock arms and just help anybody that when the you know what I mean? When especially the finances, what they're doing to redo the so in the Michael unit there's a hospice wing, which is the people they're all on their deathbed. And it's really, really sad. We walked through it and uh just a wave and a smile to some of these people, you could just see them light up like you don't you know what I mean? I know they have one or two like, you know, what do you call them? Like not a liaison. Not, they're like janitors. Slash. No, they're, they're they're. It's a new program, and it's really an awesome program. It's called No Man Die Alone. That, yeah. So they're in there, and uh, they're in there. They used to be SSIs in the prison. They used to be you know janitors cleaning, yeah. keeping the hospice clean. But now uh, Director Carter saw these men and saw what they were doing, and he they actually did a, a training program yep. for them. So it's No Man Left, you know, dies alone. It's so cool because and, these men are just in this hospice bed a lot of them you know missing limbs from diabetes and just different things that are and it's it's really hard to walk through and see because you can tell they're on their last leg but gateway is now coming through and redoing all of their little library they gave them all nice tvs in their own rooms they're redoing the patio where they can be rolled out and hang out on the patio it's just a really cool thing to that gateway is doing to help those men be able to you know die and feel god's love yeah you know in prison you know, and, I, and I've heard from Pastor Stephen Wilson that when Pastor Robert Morris heard about the hospice unit, he's like, wow, what an amazing place. And you talk about the last, you know, this is their last, if they don't know Jesus by now, this is their last opportunity for us to reach them. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, uh, that hospice unit is, uh, there's only two hospice units in the whole state. Oh, I didn't know that. Not every prison has no, one of those? no. No, uh, there's only two, and it's expensive because they have to actually have like a full time nursing staff. Yeah, we there, there's a full time yeah. hospice staff there that has to be there, so it is an expensive program. Yeah, but the really sad thing, Sean, is um, we're region two uh, in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, so we get a lot of men from the other prisons in region two that are just basically on their deathbed. They don't send them in the hospice until they're. Um, and we get guys that come in there, and if they last 24 hours. Oh, so they, they, it's not like a hospice that a regular person would no. go on. It's more of like a last minute of the hospice yeah. part. Yeah. So that's that's kind of sad to know. But at least they have something better than dying in the unit by themselves right. in the heat. And just they yeah. wouldn't even make it. A lot of the guys no. that I saw in there wouldn't make it anymore. Oh, no. No, not in general population. Yeah, I mean, I'm... because it's, it, it, it's, it's a better environment. It's air-conditioned. Like, right. say, uh, we try to, they try to keep it clean. There's nurses there. There's uh, mentors that help them. You know, this no man die alone. Yeah, that's a guys. Cool program. Uh, they have video. They have uh, gateway put uh, flat screens in each of their rooms. Yeah, they can either watch programs or you know they have most of them have Bluetooth or D- DVD. So. That's that's so awesome. Um, real quick, because I, before I forget this, and sometimes I do, I want to make sure I don't. If anybody is interested in you know supporting the Inside the Wire ministry. Right. 
um, or has any questions or like to find a way to donate, uh, do you have, what would be a good way for them to contact? So right now we're in the process, Sean, of getting a website put together for Inside the Wire. Um, Inside the Wire, uh, it's a 501c. It was uh, actually approved in February of 2019 by the IRS, and then you know what happened. March of, uh, you know, uh, within months of, the, of it getting approved and trying to get it kicked off, COVID hit. Um, and even though I was a volunteer chaplain, Sean, I was not allowed to come into the prison yeah. for probably about uh, 14 months because they had to close that environment off. So now that all this is over with, we're trying to get it going again. Right now, the best contact for me is insidethewire at gmail.com. Uh, and then we will be getting a website soon. We've got web people that are working on it right now, yeah. putting the web together. Let uh, me know when you have that done, and I'll um, make sure that all of our listeners get that website. Right. So they can be able to find you and keep up to date with what you're doing. Yeah. And the money, you know, the, so the, the money for Inside the Wire, uh, really, it's just to help me to continue. You know, I'm retired I'm 75 years old. Yeah, I'm living on Social Security, but you know it helps me cover my costs. I'm down there every week. Yeah, uh, in the prison, two hours away. I don't know if we even touched that. The yeah. Michael unit was it two and a half hours away? From me, from my house to the Michael unit, um, if I just barely go over the speed limit, it's an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> hour and 50. Yeah, uh, hour and 50 minutes from my from the my front door to the Michael unit. It's an hour and 50. It's a, it, by the time I do my round trip, it's around 230 miles. Yeah. So you know, uh, yeah, it, it's but. I just really feel like it, it's something that I've committed to do. Um, I teach recovery in general population, uh, and I teach recovery in recovery housing. Uh, I also do uh, Bible study fellowship, which uh, I was one of the first Bible study classes in a prison, in the Texas prison system, probably about five years ago. Now I think we've got four or five different units throughout the state that are doing Bible study. Awesome. So we do that from September to May, uh, every week from September to May. Uh, and when summer hits, I'm still there on every Wednesday, but I'm not doing classes. I'm just going around the unit, praying with guys in close custody. I love to go back to close custody yeah. because those are the guys that never get out. Yeah, and uh, they're just, lonely. And... Just they're, you know, and, and just to go back there and encourage them. Yeah. I mean, just to give them a quick word of encouragement. Uh, or I go into recovery housing, uh, and then I'll see guys in the, in the chapel area. And yeah. then, of course, every Wednesday night now, we have our Gateway Campus. So that runs from about four to six every Wednesday night. That's when they have service. The gateway. We have a, we have the gateway service. So, uh, gateway gateway has an awesome awesome vision for the prison ministry. It is a it is a full blown campus. I mean, they have the same projector inside the Michael unit that we have in Dallas yeah, that's at our cool. Dallas campus. We have audio. They have top of the line, and these guys get to see the message that their family is seeing. Oh, they stream that same service that they the see? The very same awesome. service that the family would see. If you go to gatewaypeople.com and watch a service, yeah. that's a service that we're going to show in the unit. That's so cool. And that, that way the men can like contact their family and go, man, I just saw this. Or, or the family can say, did you see that? Yeah, they can actually you know? be like yeah. kind of enjoying it together, yeah. going through it together. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the things that Stephen Wilson showed me when we were there they built out a full-on radio station podcast. Right. Um, I'm talking top-of-the-line stuff. Yeah. They spent $20,000 or something yeah. on this equipment to where these men can learn how to produce. They can learn how to speak on microphones. They can learn how to do their editing. They can learn how to broadcast stuff out through either podcasts or the radio station. Mm -hmm. It's such a cool thing that, uh, that they're doing to provide opportunities for these men to learn how to do it. One thing also, before I wrap this up, I got one question for you. You know okay. I'm not going to let you off the hook without the last one. But um, in, the, in the units, they have like where the, where the people who are in this recovery housing program get to stay in their own like 
private special dorm. What? Yeah. Right? Okay. So what they did, Sean, is they took uh, four building D pod one section and uh, they assigned the uh, recovery housing to that one uh, pod. So that pod is twenty four cells. Yeah. And you got two men per cell. Uh, but you've, they've really got about 45 men in there because the mentors have their own, they have a single cell. That's cool. Uh, but those men took those cells, that, that pod, and just, I mean, they scrubbed it it's, down. When you walked in there, you saw a shiny cement floor. The cleanest thing I've ever the seen. Clean, I mean, it's the cleanest place in prison you yep. can imagine because the men took pride in yeah, there. There you go. Uh, Gateway gave them all chairs, and so yeah. every time the, they got their name on the chair, this is their chair while they're in that recovery really house. Cool. And when you give someone that sort of responsibility with a nicer dorm like that, it, they even kind of enforce their own rules. You know what they I mean? They do. Like even above and beyond. Like, hey, let's make sure that we keep everything spotless yeah. and clean. Let's make sure that we're cleaning the microwave after we use it or what, you know? Yeah. Whereas in, you know, regular population dorms, you don't have that same respect. Oh, no. no. So it was really cool. And the way the races were all just made, it's just an awesome yeah. thing. I could go on and on about it, but I'm just really proud of what you guys are doing there. Yeah. Um, I see yeah. guys who are literally not even ever getting out of prison that are taking this recovery housing program seriously because they want to help other men who aren't. Amen. You're right. Yeah, I mean, there's men, life without parole, and you're thinking, why? Why waste your time in this program? Yeah, why waste your time? And I asked a guy that, and his answer was, because I want to help guys that are getting out. Exactly. And, and like blown away of the unselfishness yeah. of yeah. the answer. And, and plus it is, too, it's, you know, they, in that program, Sean, they realize this is really not only awesome place for them to live. I mean, it's still 140 degrees in the summer in there. It's yeah. not any better. You know, they don't give them air conditioning or anything. But just the fact that you don't have to worry about some guy yeah. in your pod high on K2 that's going to come up and no tell him what he's going to do. That's so true. You know? yeah. So just the fact that you're safe, it's a safe environment. It's a clean environment. Um, it's also a zero tolerance environment. Yeah. environment. It, but I mean, it's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And guys, I was just this last weekend, Sean, talking to two guys uh, who I know from the Michael unit. They're out now, and they're actually going to go in on a Carol's team. That's cool. Go back in. And we were talking about this recovery housing. They were saying, and uh, this actually started after they've already been out, but I was explaining it to them, and they're like, wow, structure. You know, who would have thought? And that's what it is, Sean. Structure. It's structure. And so the we need men that. respond to we, the structure. We need structure. Yeah, it's we so do. true. We it's do. good. All right, last question. Everyone gets this question. Okay. Um, if you had to give one piece of advice or a best piece of advice or a couple pieces of advice, whatever, however it wants to be, to either yourself at 16 or a 16-year-old boy nowadays, um, what would be your advice? Well, I tell you, I've, I've thought about this because I've listened to a, a lot of your podcasts, and I knew this question was coming. Here's my answer: I wish I would have put Jesus on the throne at 16. Hmm. Now, see, I knew about Jesus, but I really, I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus until I was about 24. But I didn't put him on the throne, and when I say put him on the throne, I mean. Am I really living my life the way that he wants me to live? You know, am I making those decisions? You're familiar with the serenity prayer, right? Yes, sir. God grant me serenity to accept, to accept the things I cannot change, yeah. courage to change the things I can, wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Well, see, God only gives me about four things that I can control. I can control the way I think. I can control the way I talk, I can control the way I feel, and I can control my action, what I do. Yeah. So if I've got a bad thought, and I don't have Jesus on the throne, and the enemy tells me that, man, he brings up my past because I've, I don't have a spotless past. He brings up the things that I've messed up, the things I've done to hurt my family or so forth. You know, I can say, wait a minute, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I've got those four things that God has given me control over. Everything else is in God's lane. 
That's so good. It's so everything hard. else is in God's it's land. Such great wisdom. It's so hard to actually do. You know. Oh, it is. It's tough. It's I mean, a challenge. We're, I mean, we're raised as men to solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So. No, that's awesome, man. So again, Wayne, thank you for being on the show. I think that you gave some awesome information. It's definitely interesting, and what you're doing is amazing, man. Don't. Don't get discouraged. You know what I mean? Stay faithful. I know that leaving those prisons and walking into those prisons is very heavy. Um, yeah. It hurts because, you know, you're, you know, pouring into these men who won't ever get to, some of these men won't ever get to see outside these gates again. And you get to walk out. And sometimes it feels kind of like guilty. You know what I mean? Like, well, you're right. I mean, sometimes you think, golly, you know, because when we, you know, as I when we started this off, Sean, I said, you know, I was one of those guys. I felt like, why should I go in there and see these guys? You know, they they did something wrong or whatever. Well, when we reflect on it, I love the, you know second chance mentors, second chance Jim. Oh, God is a God of second chances. Amen. So who am I to say, hey? You know, what, because God has blessed my life to keep me out of prison. Yeah. Why should I have that attitude? And, and sometimes it's really hard. Uh, because I, that attitude is protecting your feelings and protecting you of having to get your hands dirty. And, um, yeah. But that's not what God's called you to no. do, obviously. And that's why you're stepping out. No. But God has blessed me so much with relationships of men that are now out of prison that I'm able to, to meet with and visit with. And, you know, and then I've got so many men in prison that I communicate with, you know, that uh, are like, man, you know, thank you for touching my life. Yeah. What you're doing is literally people don't want people don't think about it like this. Most of those men behind those fences are going to end up getting out and living next door. Exactly. You're like, right. So a lot of those men are going to be your neighbor. Yeah, so and, don't you want to pour into them and make sure they're going to be good people or at least do what you can? It, it, I mean, because the Texas Department of Criminal Justice is not rehabilitating them. No. No. It I mean... No prisons really do unless no you take advantage no. of... No. So you, like you say, these a lot of these men are going to come out. They're going to be in your church. They're going to be in your neighborhood. You know, don't you want them on the right track? Yep. So no, it's great. Man. Yeah, it really is. Thanks again for doing the show. Um, listen, you guys, remember you're loved and you're forgiven, and there's nothing you can do about it. See you guys next week. <laughs>